name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may have noticed on the church calendar that there are three monastery visits within this next month. We have the women's retreat there, the men are doing a work day there, and the Goyans next weekend are going to the monastery. And uh, the, the men's work party is uh, an annual tradition, or twice a year really, in which the men go and do all kinds of work there. So I encourage the men especially to go to that and offer their service. You don't have to be strong, they have light work as well. So whether you're 14 years old or 70 years old, there's a group that you can join to go to the monastery. But I'm not gonna spend my time in the homily talking about ministry events. So I do wanna mention that at Palm Sunday we were able to raise $2,000 for the monastery. I would rather talk about a bigger picture. Why do we go to the monastery? Why do we go to monasteries in general? Why rather do we take pilgrimages? God willing, next month I'll be taking a pilgrimage to the Holy Land with my extended family. For the Holy Land, maybe the reason for a pilgrimage is more obvious. After all, it's called the Holy Land. The land itself is holy. The places have been sanctified by centuries upon centuries from before Christ, from Christ's life, the time after Christ, have been sanctified, and so we even call it the Holy Land. Like Moses at the burning bush, or like Jacob when he dreamt of the ladder to heaven, the ground is holy because it has a direct connection to God, and that connection has been made. In Genesis 26, Jacob, when he awoke from his sleep, after he had seen the ladder to heaven, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so he called the place Bethel, which means house of God. So pilgrimage is a journey to a holy place, a place that has been set aside. As Americans, as Western Christians, we've lost the meaning of pilgrimage because there's no sense of a sanctified holy place, other than we might say, again, the Holy Land, where people still take pilgrimage. But even a trip to the Holy Land can be taken like a history lesson or an archaeological sightseeing tour. But ultimately, pilgrimage is only rightly understood in the context of holiness and of place. As the patriarch Jacob said, the Lord is in this place. So this is why we take pilgrimages, and pilgrimages to monasteries. However, there's another important reason, especially when we visit a monastery, because holiness is alive and active there. In the Holy Land, so many of the sites retain their holiness solely because of something important that's happened in the past. However, monasteries have that sense of holiness, as one author put it that is palpable in the environment, not just in the ground and the physical objects, but in the people themselves, because holiness becomes incarnated. Now someone might say, well, Father, holiness can be incarnated by anyone, anywhere. Why do we need to go to monasteries? It could be even here in the parish. And yes, there's truth to that statement. But the statement itself reveals a particular viewpoint that we as Americans have, sort of an egalitarian Christianity 
that we've inherited in America. Our Puritan forebearers said, every day is holy, therefore we'll have no holy days. So what was the result of that? No day is holy. And likewise, they said, churches are just places in which we meet and we learn about God. And so they made churches into meeting halls with nothing, with no adornment. Likewise, holy places and holy days, holy people have come to the same end in the West. As Orthodox Christians, especially those who converted, we have to reject this egalitarian Christianity, this idea that all people are equal spiritually. Because even though all have equal access to God, the results are not equal. I'll read a quote from Elder Ephraim of Arizona. He says, in our days, there is much talk about equality of men and women. However, the struggles for equality in the so-called feminist movement have appeared quite late. For 20 centuries now, Christianity has resolved the problem. It abolished discrimination. It honored the female gender more equal to that of a man. Furthermore, it honored a particular woman with a claim that no man has ever had or will have, the most holy Theotokos. Here's the part I wanted to get to. Christianity in the church does not use gender, social status, education, material wealth, or intelligence as criteria to rate and assess people. We all agree with that. It does grade and evaluate, he continues. It evaluates using a single criteria, holiness. In the eyes of God, there is no male or female. There are only people who are sinful and repented, impious and pious, holy and holier. Those are the words of Elder Ephraim. So we go to holy places to see holy people as well. We go to the monasteries to encounter men and women who have forsaken everything for the love of Jesus Christ. We witness their total dedication to the Lord by visiting monasteries we're going deep into the well of faith. There's a monastery in California called Life-Giving Spring, and the, the, the name is rather fitting, because monasteries are springs for those who thirst, who live in a spiritual desert, just like the local church is the place that we have reprieve on a daily and weekly basis. So monasteries become a place that we go to for pilgrimage to have that nourishment, to have that rejuvenation. Because prayer matters, sanctity matters, communion with God matters. And when we go up and visit St. John Monastery in Goldendale, we enter a physical space that has become sanctified. A place that's been baptized in prayer, much more so than the parish church. And we especially partake in this when we join the nuns in prayer at the divine services at the monastery church. The church, by the way, is called the Catholicon, which means all things coming together. That same word Catholic that we hear uh, of the Roman Catholics. Everything comes together in this place. It's where all the people gather. So I've said all this about pilgrimages, about the importance of visiting monasteries, but we have to be honest that visiting a monastery is also humbling. How many of us, kind of those who have been Orthodox for many years, have been to the monastery once, maybe never, maybe many years ago, Something that is difficult because we're encountering people who live such a different life. And there's a sense of like, what am I supposed to do here? What, is, what goes on here for me? 
For one thing, being at a monastery, you feel exposed because holiness is at times palpable, which makes my own unholiness a little bit more apparent. Just as when we're around profane and worldly people, our conscience can be numbed and quieted, so being around holy people, our conscience becomes more alert and our spiritual maladies are more visible to us. And this is a good thing, though it doesn't always feel good. When we are at the clear water of the spring, we can more readily see the sewer of our own soul. So it's hard because we feel exposed. It's also hard because we don't know what to do at a monastery. Don't worry, that insecurity will wear off the more that you go. But it's true that monastics work during the day, so there's a lot of time in between the morning service and the evening service where you might go, what do I do with that time? Just be there. Just be there. Pray, read a book, go for a walk, bring your children out along the creek, whatever it may be. Just be there in the presence of a holy place. And it is true that the liturgical services are the most important part of it. The liturgical services at the monastery are where we join all of these spiritual athletes in prayer. We join them and we all pray together, offering our time to God and receiving communion with him. <clears throat> so there's another hurdle at the monastery for some of us. And that hurdle is the hurdle of the language in the church. I know that experience because for the first 15 years of my being Orthodox, I was around almost exclusively English services. And before I went to seminary and was ordained, Prez and I, we went to a chant conference once. And at that chant conference, the Orthro service was almost all in Greek. And Prez and I were about to walk right out the door. We thought to ourselves, how could they? How could they do this to us? We thought. In the next 15 years, we gradually experienced orthodoxy more and more in other languages, as well as at monasteries, which were absent from my early years in orthodoxy. It's humbling to be in a service that's in an unknown language. Remember this theme of humbling. The familiar parts of the service are obscure and time passes differently. It requires humility. If we experience this in Romania or Greece, we might have patience and acceptance. But if it's in a cathedral in San Francisco or in a monastery in Goldendale, we might be tempted with the thought that I had when I was at the chant conference long ago. The thought, how could they? We might want to leave or even to decide, I won't go to the monastery because it's all in Greek. Or I won't go to the services. And this is a tragedy. The opportunity for the direct experience of holiness and communion with God is denied because it's not on my terms. I remember an experience Prez Annie had when she was at a monastery years ago, early on. She said to a nun when it was time for Vespers, I'll just go to my room since I can't understand the words. The nun said, your soul will understand them. Your soul will understand them. The nun got straight to the heart of the matter. Are we in church for comprehension or for worship? Does worship need intellectual comprehension? Or is worship a movement of the soul? What is the language of the soul anyway? I suspect for those who struggle when hearing Greek at a monastery, there's a presumption behind it. The presumption that 
Greek is optional, and that English should be chosen instead. So I'll take just a moment to answer this. Though if you personally struggle with this one, a one-on-one -on -one conversation might be more fruitful. We in the parishes use English because we're evangelizing and converting people to the faith. It's a necessary thing, but it does come at a price. Languages don't translate easily, and there's much danger for heresy and misunderstanding. When we use, when we take words that were created by the faith in Greek, and then we export them into a language that has not become orthodox, or that has not created words that are orthodox, where the religious lexicon is Protestant, how, we translate, how do we translate words like noose, words like agapi, philia, all these different words for love? We just say love, 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 but they're all different. How do we translate harmolipi, kinonia, ekonomia, and so many other words? If you don't believe that the dangers are real in translating things, just look at the multitudes of biblical translations that exist out there. We've probably all experienced translations that are downright heretical. Look at the schism upon schism in the Protestant world. Furthermore, these words, they, have, they can have the wrong theological concepts and heresies that creep into them. And this has happened even within the church. English is necessary, but the dangers are apparent. A monastery, on the other hand, doesn't exist to evangelize people. A parish does. A monastery, though evangelism does occur through it, monastery exists as a place where men and women wholeheartedly dedicate themselves to Christ, and thus it becomes a safeguard for the entire church. Through prayer and through preserving the right faith, the right worship, the right glory, Innumerable times in the life of the church, monasteries and monastics have been those who corrected heresy, from St. Anthony the Great with Arianism to St. John of Damascus, all of the monastics during the Iconoclast controversy, St. Gregory Palamas, and on and on and on. So many have kept the, the faith true because they have been steeped in the faith. So when the monasteries began here in America, Elder Ephraim saw with his spiritual eyes, the danger of heresy. He was very firm about keeping Greek in the worship. They don't walk around talking Greek. I don't know if you've noticed that. But in the services alone, they have kept that. And preserving that is not about preserving Greek culture or a dislike of English language, but rather it's for the monastery's very specific purpose. Again, I could say much more about the language thing. I won't. But I know that this is a real concern for people as they go to approach a monastery. And I encourage you, if you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, more about it. Suffice it to say that there's another opportunity to humble ourselves by being in a service that is foreign to us in language. To learn what right worship is by praying with our soul rather than just with our words. And that worship is not according to our own ideas. If we see language through the lens of humility and ego, we'll have a better understanding. My brothers and sisters, we have such a great blessing near us. And I know this uh, homily might seem a little bit out of left field, but I saw all of these trips to the monastery coming up, and I thought, I need to talk about this more. We need to understand what a blessing it is that we have in front of us. Because many people cannot make a pilgrimage like that. 
or rather the pilgrimage is flying and driving in many days. We have it right here in our backyard. This place itself is a place where we can receive holiness. A few times a year, take a pilgrimage there. Slow your life down for a day or for an overnight. Pray and worship God with the spiritual heavyweights, the athletes. Bring your kids. Go and just spend the time there. Even if you can only be there for part of Vespers, it's still a blessing. Receive the love of Christ through his spiritual athletes. Drink from that spiritual spring. If you need one of these upcoming church trips to make you feel more comfortable, then by all means take them. But ultimately, it should be a journey for yourself as well. Go. Be there. Spend some time. Get yourself a drink in the cafe. Sit under the trees. And then when the time for service comes, go to the service. It's your pilgrimage and your family's blessing. If you have any apprehension or nervousness, come and see me. We can talk through it. I can tell you what to do, how to be, all of those things to make us not so nervous. But I pray that we all may come to experience the great blessing of a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage that is so near and right under our noses. May God grant us that. Amen.